This is Trepwire Week in Review for week ending July 3rd. I'm Martha Kocher with Trep, a data modeling and analytics firm for the CMBS commercial real estate and CLO markets. Each week, as you know, I'm joined with our experts, Manis Clancy, Senior Managing Director, and Joe McBride, Head of Siri Finance. This week, as we head into the long holiday weekend, some densely populated states are struggling to keep the number of COVID-19 cases down. And in some states, a rollback to phase two has been ordered. Tomorrow, the Labor Department unemployment numbers for June will be released, but today's ADP June private payrolls showed that companies are bringing furloughed workers back. However, on Tuesday, Congress heard concerns from lawmakers who think more businesses are at risk of failing. On the upside, stocks ended Q2 with strong gains, early tests of a vaccine have yielded positive data, and manufacturers reported better than expected expansion in June. Manis and Joe, what's the take on the macro news? Is the glass half empty or half full? I am going to change my stripes this week. I have been the glass half empty guy for several weeks. And I am weeks? going weeks. Decades? Decades. <laughs> I am glowing glass half full. Uh, I don't know if it was crossing over from uh, the first half of the year to the second half of the year or just a great deal of uh, introspection or maybe just indigestion. I don't know, but uh, it's always darkest before the dawn. And I think H2 will follow with uh, some upbeat news uh, and the brutal H1 2020 will be behind us and we'll feel a lot better uh, six months from now. Um, on the COVID side, I think we're gonna turn the corner. Uh, I'm still not a believer, by the way, in the robust V-shaped recovery. And, and I do think the stock market is um, frothy. Um, but I do think that there's room for hope in Q3 and, and for H2. Um, for one thing, we're four months into this crisis, which means we're four months closer to a vaccine. And if you believe that one is a year in the making, we're a third of the way there. So that is reason for hope. Um, it was not heavily reported this week, but for four consecutive days, according to NBC, we had the lowest death count due to COVID of any period since March 21st. So I know that we're talking a lot about um, positive tests coming back, but I wanted to give our listeners the other side of the coin, which is there are some hopeful headlines out there. I do believe that we've really taken steps to identify the most physically vulnerable uh, to isolate them and to protect them. And that 90% of Americans, when I go from South Carolina to New York and back, seem to be complying. Um, I think that there's a lot more cooperation than one might think. If you kind of follow the news or, or listen to the 5% on either side of the argument, um, the mortality rate has been falling. I think that once you get outside of New York and New Jersey, it's about 40% less for states outside of New York and New Jersey than it was in those states. And that's not really surprising. They were the first ones hit and they got that category five that hit landfall uh, hardest. Um, so I think we're gonna still see uh, improvement. And then my last point on the COVID is that um, we should know soon. And the reason I say that is we've seen mass gatherings for Memorial Day, for beach openings. This weekend, it'll be July 4th. We've seen protests in 40 U.S. cities. 
we saw some big gatherings for the pride parades and those are big places where tens of thousands of people got together. And if we don't see a spike um, in hospitalizations and deaths by the end of July, I think that governors can start turning their attention to the most economically vulnerable small business owners and start to open more aggressively. That's my hope. So glass half full, I'm in. By October, we're feeling pretty good. Wow. <laughs> I don't know if I can follow that. I think my favorite part is that the, the data is hopeful. The headlines are disastrous, right? And I think that we are all subject to being stuck in our homes, reading Twitter, reading Wall Street Journal and New York Times headlines, and for you know the for the other people reading Daily Mail and Drudge Report and all and the New York Post and all that other stuff and you know they make their money on clicks and eyeballs and if they were to have a headline which said things are getting better slowly but surely that thing would not get clicked on right so I think the truth of the matter is not easy to find in any news or TV outlet uh, there are some good people some good follows on social media who are trying to give a sober recounting of what's going on. But I think you, you hit on it, Manus. I think of course there's going to be increase in cases when you open the economy back up because the 18 to 30 year olds are going out to the bars and going out and partying and, you know, wearing their masks probably for the first two drinks and then no more. Uh, and I think that the, you know, you're seeing some stuff too. I like to see in the, NBA and the NHL that as these guys come back and start to practice, they're all getting tested. And it's something like four or 5% of them are testing positive, right? And most of them are asymptomatic. So I think it tells us that if you extrapolate that out to the whole universe, the number of positive cases is probably much, much, much higher than that than has been reported. But that's actually a good thing because that tells me that the, you know, mortality rates and the um, effect of this disease on most, you know, average people is actually much less than what you would think if you were just watching the news all day. Well, right? I, I'm a very average person, so um, <laughs> I am the most average person. So I, I, you could use me as your test case. But I do want to underscore that, that I do feel that whether I'm walking into a deli, um, you know, I'm jogging through the park, I'm watching people walk through my building. I just do feel whether you're talking about 18 year olds or 75 year olds, everybody seems to be doing the right thing. And that's lost in the conversation when you have either side of the polls um, dominating the conversation. And, and it makes me feel good. I feel like people are really doing the best they can to try to make this situation uh, as victimless as possible. I mean, of course, there's going to be a huge human component to this, and there has been already. But I do feel that contrary to the headlines and the screaming and the noise, that man, people are really pulling in the same direction. And that's a hopeful sign. Yeah, I, I, uh, I saw the pause in Texas. And that that was a little sad to me. Um, they're doing what they think is right. And they have to do what they think is right. Uh, but I was just hoping that we could, you know, continue with the reopening. Um, I do have a, a planned dinner with a couple of friends at Mama Asunta's in uh, Tuckahoe next week. 
a wonderful Italian restaurant. They do not advertise with us yet, but best veal parm in Westchester County. I hope and I pray that 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 they don't roll back any of these reopenings because I'm looking forward to seeing somebody in real life and not just on a computer screen. Take my word for it. Go for the shells with the shredded sausage with the light penne vodka sauce. It's my <laughs> I'll go-to take that under thing consideration. <laughs> at the Mama Asanta whenever I go. And it is delicious. And it was open last week. And uh, Mama Mia, it was delicious. Sorry you weren't invited to this dinner, Manis. <laughs> so before we get into uh, so the, some of the CMBS numbers uh, on the macro econ numbers, Manis, you have some thoughts on those? Well, it wasn't just the COVID stuff that I felt good about. And, and maybe this is selective reading. Uh, maybe it, it comes from 100 days of uh, negative headlines, as Joe said, and, and fear and concern and everything else. But there is a lot of stuff that it seems to be turning in the right direction. Uh, FedEx said this week that they were seeing signs uh, of a tentative global recovery. In fact, their deliveries were Christmas season-like to homes uh, over the last month or so, which is terrific. We've seen 10 straight weeks of hotels seeing uh, modest increases in attendance. We saw Boston properties collect 98% of their rents, which is great. We're still seeing 95% of multifamily tenants paying their uh, monthly leases, which is great. S&P Global put out its 2021 forecast of sub-investment grade default expectations. Its baseline projection is only slightly above the number that was the peak of the great financial crisis. Uh, the journal again noted that um, because of aggressive bond buying by the Fed, uh, several companies have sidestepped problems over the last six months. They've been able to, or six weeks, they've been able to increase liquidity. Um, my colleague Jody, who covers the CLO market for us in Trepwire, has covered a lot of this uh, equity and debt raising between AMC, SeaWorld, Boeing, Royal Caribbean. Um, by the way, if you're not getting her research, you should. It's great stuff in terms of keeping up with um, how that market is moving, how it's gone in many cases from uh, $90 handles for leveraged loans down to 30 and back up to 60. Uh, she's doing a terrific job with that in my shameless plug of the week. Um, consumer confidence from the conference board this week um, beat expectations, which should be a broad barometer of people feeling better than they did. Yes, the expectations were low, and that's true of a lot of data, but um, even beating low expectations is a positive. We have to feel good about that. We noted that retail sales came in above expectations, pending home sales, surprised to the upside. The ADP jobs number today, even though it didn't meet expectations, it did go from negative to positive, which was a nice turn. So these are all hopeful signs. And like I said, maybe it's selective um, dissonance on my part right now because I want to see us turn the corner. I'm really looking forward to people getting back to work and the economy healing. And uh, I hope that's the case. Yeah, I think uh, this more than maybe not more, but I think more than most past crises, there is such a huge psychological component to this. And I think that the recovery is going as as always, but maybe more so now, is going to be driven by how much confidence 
we, the collective we, the collective society can instill in people that they are going to be safe, that, you know, hopefully we get a vaccine, hopefully we get some therapeutic. I just, I, I walked down to uh, Starbucks yesterday with my wife and I, I stayed outside and she went in and got something with her mask and everything. And I saw, you know, a mom and their, and her daughter walking in and the daughter like grabbed her shirt to kind of open the door. You know what I mean? And the, the mom said, grabbed a handkerchief and opened the door. And, you know, that's like the tiniest microcosm of times that by 350 million like events every single day that we're going to be using our shirt to open our open doors for quite some time. And the longer that we are, the more kind of this kind of underlying paranoia that people have, maybe it's paranoia is a bad word, but underlying concern, the slower we're going to recover. Right. So I, I really hope that we can, uh, you know, get some V-shaped recovery in confidence and feelings of safety. And because that's when people will spend money, go back to work, start hiring people, start paying people more. The one guy that will never go away, and every office has about three or four of them, is the guy that uses the bathroom, pulls the paper towel, turns the water on, washes their hands, turn the water off with the paper towel, opens the door to leave the bathroom with a paper towel, and throws the paper towel in the trash while leaving. So they never touch anything that is of any kind of ceramic or steel um, germ carrying piece of equipment. That guy has existed for 30 years and he will still come out of this uh, pandemic, maybe with two paper towels coming forward. He's been doing that for 30 years and he's in his glory right now without COVID saying, I told you so. Probably. Right. This was just right around the corner. Probably. All right. Let's move on to our CMBS numbers. And the, uh, the question is, did we beat the record? We didn't beat the record. We um, came close. We thought at one point in the month that we would. It looked like delinquencies were going to be approaching at 11%. The all-time record from 2012 was 10.34%. That record still holds by uh, the skin of its teeth. The delinquency number came in at 10.32% this month, uh, which was about a 320 basis point increase over the previous month. The term we used in our delinquency report, and if you don't get our um, report every month, uh, ping us. Uh, We do put it out late every month or the beginning of the following month um, to the public. It uh, showed that we are starting to reach terminal delinquency velocity And by that, we mean that the number of or the percentage of loans that are in grace period now has fallen off dramatically so that there aren't that many loans left that should go delinquent next month that were sitting in grace period this month. So while we could see another uptick next month, it shouldn't be anywhere near the magnitude of what we saw in May and June. Uh, the curve should be kind of leveling off. And as I've been telling some of my colleagues at TREP this week, theoretically, if you didn't need relief in April, May, or June, why would you need it in July, August, or September? Unless you are facing a loan maturity, chances are if you've muddled through this far, you're going to make it uh, in Q3. So that is the hope. I think we see a new record set in July, but we're not going to see another 3% uptick we will see more uh, increases in the already 
heavily hit categories of retail and hotel. Um, but to stick with our positive message that we started with today, we really have seen no degradation whatsoever in industrial. In fact, industrial is exactly the same delinquency rate as it was six months ago. And the increases in multifamily and office have been extremely modest. So the hotel and retail are getting a lot of headlines, um, but there are some green shoots in there. So Manis, what's, what's your over under on our, on our maximum delinquency rate? Well, we did see that in the great financial crisis, we had a really long tail and things built up gradually over the course of four years, right? The crisis started in 2008 and we didn't reach our peak until 2012. So I do think we inch up and we inch up largely on the basis of retail maturity defaults in 2023 and 24. But I would say we peak at, let me throw a number out there, 13 and a quarter. Hmm. All right. And you think that's going to take that long? No, I think it'll be faster because those maturity dates hit us very quickly. So I don't think we're talking about this in 2024, 2025. I think they resolve faster than that. Um, But I do think that it is a steady, but less steep incline for several months. Yeah. Yeah. So you mentioned industrial and the delinquency rate uh, for industrial. That was the only sector where uh, the delinquency improved month over month. We're going to be doing a deep dive on that. And you mentioned Jody, uh, one of your colleagues, one of our colleagues, she's going to be doing a report on that in the coming month. Uh, so we can do uh, some more analysis on what's going on there. Looking at uh, commercial real estate, Starwood Property Chairman Barry Sternlich was on CNBC this week. And he said that the U.S. could see extreme distress. And that's a quote, if businesses cannot get back to work. Is that too dire? Or is he right on the money? Well, he did single out New York uh, among the list of cities that he was talking about. And and because we spend so much time in this area and we know how it ebbs and flows, um, I have to agree with him there. It it will be my one negative twist, hopefully, for this podcast. Um, I do agree with him. I think that in sports, you talk about five tool athletes. In New York, I think you talk about, you know, five wax to the head, right? You have um, offices which could reconfigure to spoken hug, hub methods, or at a minimum, start to see, um, you know, 50% occupancy, which crushes the restaurants um, and the service industry altogether. I don't see, I don't think you see the conference business coming back for 12 to 18 months. I think the U.S. tourist business has no reason to come to New York now that Broadway is closed until uh, early 2021 and there's no sports to visit, no Yankee stadium and so forth. I think that overseas travel is still restricted um, from the far East. And I think that will continue um, to be slow. And I think that it's an expensive place to live. And I think that uh, if you've been laid off, if you are in that service industry, you know, there are no $1,500 a month apartments anywhere close to Manhattan, right? We're talking two, three, $4,000 a month and people were barely making it on barista salaries and, and service industry salaries before this. Uh, it's hard to imagine um, not seeing an uptick 
in multifamily uh, occupancy declines. So he, I, Barry kind of walked some of these statements back. I think he was caught in a more honest than he should have been moment. Um, you know, Barry Stern is the CEO of Starwood and they own properties in all property types across all kind of l- large cities and elsewhere. And some of the things he said were uh, office rents could fall by 25% while in- expenses increase, driving value down by 40%. Uh, if city dwellers leave, residential landlords would face a similar problem. Uh, you know, he talks about the vicious cycle, which is everything that Manus just mentioned means the, the income tax and the, the retail sales tax that New York City and New York State collect this year is going to be extremely on the decline, right? And if that happens, they still have to pay their cops and their teachers and their you know, union people and everything else, and they may just need to raise taxes even more. So that's a vicious cycle which sends people leaving the city, leaving the state, which then means that the people who cannot afford to leave are the ones that are bearing the, big, the bigger burden. I mean, he, th- he said it, if this is the quote, if they raise taxes, more people leave and the social burden of those that are less fortunate falls on an ever smaller revenue base. The services of the city get worse, the city gets dirtier, the police show up less often, it's a negative cycle. So. I hope this is not the case. I think that, you know, again, I think we, everybody in New York and in the U.S. is, is much more resilient than the news would let you imagine. Um, but if it takes two years to get people back in their offices in the city, which I think is a, a reasonable thing to think, then, you know, I, I know that some of the trading desks have been moved to, you know, Connecticut and Westchester and New Jersey. Uh, and they're back, they're getting back to the office in July. And if that works out, maybe they don't go back to the city. Right. And uh, that suburban office where you can drive to, I mean, I know I've talked to a couple of friends at banks, uh, another buddy who's on a kind of a commodities trading desk and they're driving back to their offices now and they're already back. But I don't know anybody who's in a, who's in the city in Manhattan, who's going back to the office yet. So I mean, it's a dire portrayal of the future for, for Manhattan, but I, he's Barry Stern. Like, who am I to say he's wrong? As somebody who lived through New York City in part of the 70s and the 80s, uh, I loved it even in that time, even though it was uh, in a heavy state of crime and deterioration and uh, X-rated movie theaters everywhere in Times Square and, and uh, you know, just a lot of... Um, scary places. I, I loved it then. So uh, I'm, I'm a New Yorker through and through. But to your point, you know, one thing that really struck a nerve when you were saying that is the hotel tax in New York is just enormous. And there you're getting florists to pay an enormous freight for your um, tax base, which is great. So you don't have to saddle your own residence with that, um, you know, service, you know, that uh, funding that part of your service economy. And now that's, that's out the window. But one other point on New York is that there were several parts of the city that were um, already facing problems before COVID. We had seen a glut of hotel rooms. We had seen um, a real pullback of street level retail from high enders on Madison and Fifth Avenue before this. And we knew we were facing two or 3 million square feet of new space 
in Hudson Yards. So we came into this with problems which will only um, aggravate the situation even further. That being said, uh, let's remember two things. We came out of the 70s and 80s even better than we ever were. And within an 18 month period in the late 60s and 70s, we won three titles, right? Knicks, <laughs> Jets, and Mets. So there's always a silver lining. Priorities. I'll, I'll take them. I'll take the Knicks. I don't care about the other two. Priorities. <laughs> well, following up on hotels, the Wall Street Journal had a story this week that dove into the hotel industry, citing some of our data and highlighting owners with the most money in CMBS loans. But the TREP data showed that the majority of troubled hotel loans are smaller businesses. What's the impact for hotel owners right now? Well, let me start by saying that, you know, last week we mused about what a bailout for the hotel industry might look like. Um, and it really was, was amusing, not amusing, but it was a space musing by Joe and I of what, uh, what one might look at look like. And uh, aside from the Route 66 riff and that road trip episode, this was our most highly commented um, point of view or, or segment since we started doing these podcasts a few months ago. We had a lot of comments back and forth, um, some really funny, some very pointed, some great ideas out there. Uh, so let me say thank you to everybody who listened and everybody who came back with their ideas. In response to one specific question, uh, one listener asked, do we have any insider information and do we know that this is the way that the, um, the regulators are leaning? And the answer is no. This was purely a, a speculative part uh, for me and Joe to think about how something like this would work because the Fed um, can't put money in the pockets of um, borrowers that would take an act of Congress or something else to to give them monetary relief and buying their debt um, would not help. But it is a, um, a broad market. It is combined both, you know, big guys that own big portfolios that have deep pockets that um, can tap the um, capital markets and they should. Um, I think the optics as one of our listeners pointed out would be terrible if this looks like a bailout to guys that could otherwise tap the capital markets. I think a, a bailout should be targeted and it should be targeted to those guys that qualify as small businesses um, to help them muddle through. Um, I do think it has to come by form of some kind of mezzanine debt, as we said last week. And uh, I hope it happens for the sake of these guys that have put their uh, life savings on the line, building these small businesses. Well, it could be, I mean, didn't the Fed make money on TALF or TARP uh, the last time around? I think the, the taxpayer ended up making money on, on a lot of those bailout programs because they were able to keep these assets alive, right? And actually hold, the Fed has a very, very long time horizon, whereas a small business, small hotel operator, you know, has a timeline of, of today and can I make my debt payment this month? I think there's always going to be a um, part of the population that looks at these things and assumes that only incredibly wealthy, you know, people on their yachts uh, with their billions of dollars in their bank accounts, you know, own these things and get uh, a benefit from these federal programs. But I think like anything, if you did the math, you know, only a very, very small percentage of people own a house that's worth more than $2 million, right? The long, long, long tail of people own 
houses that are worth $350,000, right? Or whatever that median number is. And that, that holds true across all industries, across all, you know, scientific endeavors, right? There's, there's a, always this long tail and there's always going to be some small group at the top that have a lot, but they don't have the majority of the assets, right? So yes, the colonies of the world and the, the Ashford hospitality trusts and things like that, they own a lot of real estate and they would benefit from a program like this, but so would thousands and thousands and thousands of CMBS borrowers who own three or four properties or own one, one hotel, right? So we can't, we can't eliminate the help just because it's also going to help the people who are at the top, right? As long as it's targeted and it's effective and it's, you know, relatively um, well and efficiently done, I think it's, it has to happen, right? Yeah, I'm not a bailout guy in general. I think that uh, often we cast too wide a net. And, and in terms of the, the government uh, making money on the last bailout, um, I didn't get my check back. So I, I don't know. Maybe they did, maybe they didn't. But uh, if they did, the check got lost in the mail. Um, but if you're going to do something, you want to do it surgically. I think you want to want to um, make it for the guys that can't tap the capital markets. You want to do it in a way that protects the, um, the taxpayer. Uh, you want it to be tightly um, harnessed to a certain type of borrower. And, and you want to make sure that uh, it, it gets to the right people. I think that in the beginning, um, some of the, the giveaways um, from the first COVID relief got into the hands of people that and firms that could have tapped the public markets and that was highly criticized, rightly so. And, and some of the firms gave back the money and indeed tapped the, the capital markets. Um, but we want to make sure that, you know, in this case, uh, it gets to those people for which you get the best and highest benefit for those that um, don't have access to capital. During right. the great financial crisis, you know, where the rubber met the road was when GE could no longer tap the commercial paper markets anymore. And, and that's when it kind of got me that something was going sideways because they had nothing to do with um, ABX or CMBX or derivative buying or um, subprime mortgages, right? They were being caught up in this whirlwind of lost confidence. And when GE couldn't tap the commercial paper market, what you were faced with was a, a strong company at the time, of course, they've had their issues since then, running aground or running into the rocks on the basis of something that had nothing to do with their core business. And in many ways, this COVID is kind of this uh, whirlpool of things that threatens to take down endless amounts of small businesses. And if you can... Um, provide a lifeline or a raft to a small business that it would otherwise survive in these times absent this six month um, pandemic, um, you, you know, you probably should because otherwise the economic damage is overwhelming. So before we turn uh, to the banking industry, there were a bunch of headlines in Tripwire this week. Manus, uh, if you'd like to pick a few of your favorites. Well, we did have the one story about the Dream Mall, about that has been kind of racking up liens. For those that don't know, it's on the Jersey Turnpike. It's right next to MetLife Stadium, where the Jets and Giants play. It's been under construction for 20 years. Um, 
somebody will someday write a book about it of, of how it probably is the most ill-fated project in the retail space to ever have been committed to. It's had several different ownership entities. Its first um, demise came because it tried to open right before the great financial crisis. It was renamed Xanadu, um, which our own Tom Fink had a good chuckle with, with Governor uh, John Corzine on CNBC about years ago when our Tom Fink used to be called the Toxic Avenger. <laughs> um, it defaulted several times. It was picked up again by the same owners that own the Mall of America and the West Edmonton Mall in Canada. 49% of those malls was pledged as collateral to get the Dream Mall going again. Just when it was set to launch again, COVID happens and not only did they have to pull back on their reopening, but several of the retailers that they were counting on, including a big movie operator, uh, Lord and Taylor, Barney's, et cetera, started hitting the skids. So it is a star-crossed piece of real estate. And, uh, you know, the, the people that pledged the Mall of America against it uh, are probably sweating bullets at this point. It's like the Job of malls, <laughs> right? Just cannot catch a break, this mall. Well, the great thing is, you know, they had a a indoor uh, ski slope. Yeah. That was its first gimmick. And then it went into default. And they said, well, we have to have a, even a better gimmick to get people to come in here. So they make it a water slide park, yep. right? The only thing that, you know, I, I don't know if there's anything less desirable right now as a destination and indoor a water slide park water park maybe afghanistan right i mean <laughs> maybe it's number two but uh you know it's just star-crossed well i think that these are smart people right who are taking these chant obviously there's a smart company that owns the mall of america and the location cannot be denied right the location is within whatever, five miles of what, like 20 million people. And it's something that everybody who's ever driven to or from New York, from New Jersey to New Jersey, they drive by it, right? So it's an epic location. They just cannot seem to figure it out. I mean, it's almost like, you know, I think of it in, in, in software land. It's like, can we just build like a small thing first before we try to build the, the giant thing? Right? Could they have just opened a movie theater and then built on that? But no, they, 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 I remember them building the ski slope for seemingly 100 years. So turning to banks, the industry held its collective breath as the Fed released the results of its DFAS stress tests. There weren't any big surprises, but we did learn a few things. What did we learn? Well, we talked last week about how, you know, the playbook has changed in that um, when we came out of the great financial crisis, the Fed uh, via the Dodd-Frank had three scenarios, one of them being the severely adverse. And the severely adverse was meant to reflect the end of times type scenario, right? Uh, incredible unemployment, incredible fall off in GDP and so forth. And the banks were required to run that again this month. And, uh, and what we found out is the minimum um, common tier one equity among all the banks that had a report was almost 10%, which, which is pretty good. Um, you know, all the banks passed in, in that regard and so forth. 
But what we learned is that the Fed now effectively has three other scenarios that are all considerably worse than what was their previous worst case scenario. So in the severely adverse scenario, as we said, the minimum common tier one equity coming out of the, that scenario is 9.9%, right? In their tweaked scenario of COVID with a V-shaped recovery, it falls to 9.5%. If we see a U-shaped recovery, 8.1%. And if it's a W-shaped recovery, 7.7%. So if you kind of use that as a proxy for um, magnitude of worst case scenario, they've kind of said that the worst case scenario has now gotten 23% worse in terms of how much uh, tier one equity you lose than it was coming out of the great financial crisis. And that's a little alarming. Yeah, I think the, the losses in, that same, in those same scenarios, in the severely adverse scenario, the Fed was projecting 6.3% losses uh, on average across all the banks, uh, the CCAR banks. In the V-shaped, it's 8.2%, U-shaped 10.3%, W-shaped about 10%. So, you know, 10% losses over, I think it's over nine quarters, so a little over two years. That is a pretty high loss amount, right? I think uh, CMBS losses were around that uh, in the past great financial crisis, and bank loans are at least from what they tell us, uh, are a little bit less risky, a little bit uh, more strongly underwritten. Um, so your point is well taken, Mattis. The In the U-shaped recovery, their losses are almost 50% higher uh, than their previously most dire scenario they could think of, right? Which is a little worrisome. I mean, the, the, the two upshots for me that came out of these results was, one was they suspended stock buybacks, right? For all the banks. Now, most of the banks had already suspended stock buybacks themselves, which I always find interesting. I think like, isn't the best time to buy back your stock is when it's on the cheap, if you believe in your business long-term. But anyway, the optics of that is, is not great, I guess. Uh, and the other one was they limited dividend payments to, I think it was the average of your last four quarters uh, net income. So you can't, you basically can't pay dividends out of debt. Essentially, you have to be able to support the dividend with net income. And that was going to affect, seemingly going to affect Wells Fargo and Goldman Sachs, which is why their stocks dropped, uh, forget, 8 or 10% or so on Thursday when the results came out. Uh, so anyway, I think, you know, this stress testing regime uh, was put in place to make sure that the banks were capitalized enough to handle a severely adverse type scenario. And it seems like it has worked. Uh, you know, as much as I don't love, uh, you know, onerous regulations and, and things like that, the, the fact that the banks have had to endure and build this discipline, I think makes them, you know, one of the strongest pillars of the economy right now that could, like we said months ago, the banks may be the ones that help pull the economy through this thing, as opposed to being the source of the problem, which they were the last time around. Additionally, we released a report this week from our own bank loan data showing CNI loan performance for Q1. Anything there that we should be looking at? 
Yeah, so uh, like we mentioned last week, this data is only through March 31st, so it doesn't take into account the full depth and breadth of this this uh, COVID impact. But what we did see were things that you would expect to see, which was a significant increase in uh, utilization rates, which essentially means a bank lends you 100 bucks, but they only give you 50 bucks to start off and you call them up when you want the next 50. And uh, in our data from Q4, the utilization rate on corporate loans was about 44%. And in Q1 2020, it was just over 50%. That is a very, very large increase, you know, by historical standards, which makes sense, right? If you think about personally, if you're running out of money, you start using the credit card, right? And this is um, something we, we definitely expected. The delinquency rates were not uh, significantly higher. They actually decreased from December to March. Uh, we would expect to see those kind of tick up uh, in the next time around. Some of the charge-offs, which are losses for those non-banky banker people out there, um, there was about 1.4, almost 1.5% in periodic charge-offs in the oil and gas uh, sector. So uh, that was something to keep our eye on. Everywhere else, the next down was about 30 basis point in construction and past that was, was pretty low numbers. So we expect to see a lot more in the hospitality sector, in the retail sector uh, coming up, but that's kind of the takeaway that we saw. For those that are unfamiliar with this, by the way, um, we have a consortium. What we're reflecting here is we have a consortium of banks that contribute data to us every quarter. Um, we anonymize this and we give this data back to the banks so they can benchmark themselves against this data. And what you're seeing is um, what this data looks like in aggregate. So for those unfamiliar with that um, product, th that's where this data comes from. Turning to corporate CLOs, we saw some headlines that impacted the corporate loan market. Let's go through a couple of those, Manus. Well, we started off with our green, green shoots talking about the fact that um, S&P was um, seeing rates that were not going to surpass by a lot what we saw in the great financial crisis, S&P Global. Um, that was a positive sign. And, and also that the Wall Street Journal had had that positive story on the Fed's actions having a positive impact for many um, previously hard hit industries like uh, tourist destinations and cruise liners. Um, but it's not all uh, peaches and cream out there at this point. Uh, retailers are still struggling. Um, we are seeing delinquencies continue and uh, delinquencies meaning missed debt service payments continue um, to rack up restructurings, bankruptcies. Um, the same is true. I think we saw another three or four in the oil and gas space this week. So, um, green shoots on one side, um, casual dining was another area where we saw that six or seven um, separate players, not that they tapped the, the leverage loan market, but they had, um, had bankruptcy filings, had found buyers, um, Boeing, American Airlines, SeaWorld had managed to raise cash, um, but the likes of, of Macy's, JCPenney's, um, and other retailers, Pier 1, um, just can't seem to find a bottom these days, and uh, those are as challenged as ever. 
As we head into the long weekend, fireworks, bars, and indoor dining are probably not likely for many of us this weekend. So is it beaches, barbecues, or Hamilton and Disney Plus, or perhaps watching Joey Chestnut try to beat his record of 74 hot dogs? Well, there's a, there's a funny saying about the hot dog thing, that the guys, when they get together at Coney Island before the contest starts, I guess they walk around and they touch the buns and, and they watch how guys are eating them and so forth. And the question is, how are the buns running? <laughs> and it has to do with, are the buns like a little stale? Are they fresh? Are they right out of the oven? How much water do they need? So there is this lingo out there on Coney Island, which is just unique to the Joey Chestnuts of the world, where they, they want to know how are the buns running before the, uh, the thing is like, is it a fast track? Is it a slow track? Is it a muddy track? So uh, my 18 year old told me that. So I thought it was a piece of, of, of trivia. I heard Joey um, Chestnuts mutter was a mutter though. <laughs> I heard a good thing. I went to a graduation last week where the keynote speaker was talking about how we had to do this a month late and uh, classes were canceled for the last um, month of the year or three months of the year. And he said, you know, you're not the first generation of people to go through a crisis like this. In 1942, classes were canceled because so many young men, 18 years old, had to enlist in the Army or the Navy or the Air Force and went to war. And they later became known as the greatest generation. And um, that really struck a chord for me right now, because um, to, to go back to my opening line, I think that how we deal with this crisis right now will define how we look at these young men and women right now, whether they are uh, helping um, construct new laws and new procedures for uh, how society will evolve going forward or um, whether it's, you know, building um, new tests, you know, at, at pharmaceutical companies, right? This is their moment to shine. And um, I hope that we can look back and say that, you know, one day that maybe the guys from 1942 were the second greatest generation. And these were the guys that opened up a whole new wave of what was possible in medicine and um, uh, our interactions with each other and, and so forth. Um, and, and I hope that's the way it ends. Well, you hear that kids get to work. <laughs> be the guy that solves COVID, be the guy that rebuilds your city, be the guy that helps us find a better way forward out of all the social unrest that we come out of this and be that guy that's part of the greatest generation part two. Wow. Amen. If that doesn't make you feel patriotic, nothing will. So with that, we're going to close. Thanks to our producer, Keegan St. Anjame. Join us next week as we look at what's happened during the week and how it may be impacting you. If you have a question, please send us an email at podcast at trep.com. Until then, visit us at trep.com for more info and subscribe to the podcast with your favorite provider. Thank you for listening and stay well. All right. <laughs>